Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 68b, Fateful Decisions, The Allies, from the Ain to Vladivostok. Last time, we looked at how the Central Powers adopted a defensive strategy for 1917, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare and the German army's retirement to the Hindenburg Line were necessary steps if the Central Powers had any hope of withstanding another year of conflict. German, Habsburg, and Ottoman command knew the Entente was coming, and they needed to be ready when that moment arrived. Since we covered the Central Powers in Part A, we will now flip over to the Entente and see how France, Great Britain, and Russia were setting their own course for 1917. We'll begin by looking at Anglo-French relations at the start of the new year, before skipping over to Russia for the second half of the episode. This will complete our preview of 1917, and we can resume our normal narrative in the next episode. The Allies began the new year with a military and political summit held in Rome on January the 5th. The summit marked their first meeting since France and Britain had undergone significant leadership changes in the aftermath of the Somme, with Joffre being dumped in favor of Robert Nevel and David Lloyd George becoming Britain's 53rd Prime Minister in December. This change in leadership shifted the outlook for 1917 almost overnight, upending the plans laid out by Joffre at the end of November. Nevel and Lloyd George had come to power promising a different approach than what had been seen over the past two years. The Rome Summit thus served as their coming-out party. They brought their own ideas to the Eternal City, and neither was interested in abiding to their predecessor's commitments. During the three-day conference, Lloyd George voiced his opposition to a renewed Western Front offensive, citing public morale as his primary concern. The Somme had been a sobering experience. The war office had been overwhelmed by the loss of life and was slow notifying the families of soldiers lost in the field. Letters from concerned loved ones flooded in from across the country, begging for assistance in locating a lost son, father, or brother. Lloyd George had watched all this up close and was concerned another year of attrition might be too much to bear. He believed the public needed a concrete victory, something that can be seen on a map without the subterfuge of military inertia. As we've discussed in past episodes, David Lloyd George was no pacifist. He was a total warrior, committed to the successful prosecution of the war and Germany's unconditional surrender. In a 26-point memorandum circulated to the Rome delegates, Lloyd George laid out his criticisms and solutions to the war's troubles. He argued Britain made a strategic blunder by committing to the Western Front. Her global empire gave her the advantage of being able to attack the Central Powers anywhere in the world. And this, according to Lloyd George, was an opportunity the Allies had failed to capitalize on. To rectify this problem, the Prime Minister approached the idea of expanding the Front, and using Britain's imperial resources to support her allies in the East. Lloyd George identified that a potential solution lay in Italy. Why was this, you ask? Well, the Italian front was the center point of the European theater. He believed that with the Western Front stillborn, 
A major action in Italy, supported by Anglo-French guns and infantry, could force the Central Powers to rethink their plans. The purpose of this expedition would be to secure the port city of Trieste, thus threatening Habsburg naval posts along the Istrian peninsula. The problem, which Lloyd George soon discovered, was that no one supported his plan. The French, while eager to see positive developments in the Balkans, were understandably opposed to any diversion from the Western Front. The Italians were equally skeptical. General Cadorna considered Lloyd George's proposal fanciful and unrealistic. He accused the British Prime Minister of underestimating the monstrous difficulties of the Isonzo Front, citing the inexperience of Anglo-French troops in mountainous warfare. The logistics alone were enough to convince the other representatives to drop the case. The Italian plan was sent for further consideration, which is a diplomatic way of saying, into the trash heap. The Rome Conference ended in disappointment for Lloyd George, but he did not walk away totally empty-handed. Before he departed for London on January 8th, he had the chance to meet the new French army commander, Robert Nevel, and he was impressed with what the Frenchman had to say. Robert Nevel's ascension to commander-in-chief of the French army capped off a tumultuous period in French politics. The Briand government had clung to power by the skin of its teeth, having survived a hair-raising vote of confidence in the Chamber of Deputies. As a result, Briand was forced to make numerous concessions to the opposition, which included making a change to army leadership. Papajov's prestige had been swallowed up by the penumbras of Verdun and the Somme, and it was time to make a change. By December 13th, Joffre and his Somme counterpart, Ferdinand Foch, were out, replaced by Robert Nevel and his right-hand man, Charles Mangin. Nevel and Mangin's reputations were riding high after Verdun. Their efforts to recapture Forts Duomond and Vaux had catapulted them into the public eye. They seemed to have materialized out of thin air, achieving promotion over more senior men like Fayol and Pétain. Indeed, Nevel went from obscure regimental colonel to national commander in just two years. Despite being amateurs at such a high level of command, public opinion was overwhelmingly in their favor, and you don't say no to the heroes of Verdun. But as Robert Doughty points out in his book about French strategy and operations, this was part of the problem. Nevel's appointment came at the expense of more qualified and respected officers. Anti-clerical factions were also at work. Nevel was a Protestant, which the radical cabals found more appealing than a Catholic candidate like Pétain. Thus, Nevel's appointment was not without its controversy. As Doughty writes, quote, France's political leaders placed all their bets on an officer with no experience as a strategist, little understanding of how to work with allies, and only six months' experience as an army commander. End quote. All things being considered, Robert Nevel brought a renewed wave of optimism which was sorely missing from the higher rungs of French command. His famous decree that his methods could win the war in 48 hours galvanized his subordinates. Even those who doubted such fanciful statements were enamored by his confidence. Robert Nevel wasted no time in making his mark. Before the ink had dried, 
Nivelle issued a new set of orders canceling Joffre's plans for a second general offensive. This immediately won him the favor of David Lloyd George, and, surprisingly enough, the newly minted field marshal, Douglas Haig, who, during the winter of 1916-17, was looking to launch a new operation in Flanders. After canning Joffre's plans, Nivelle then began laying the groundwork for a new, grand offensive. His first order of business was to switch the battlefronts, swapping the shell-blasted hellscape of Picardy for the shell-blasted hellscape of the chamois Dam Ridge. Remember that large ridge along the Aisne, which featured heavily in the battles of 1914-1915? Well, the chamois Dam was where Nivelle planned to end the war in 48 hours. He saw his grand operation taking place in two phases. The first phase being a holding action as Anglo-French troops attacked between Vimy and the Was River. The second phase would be the main attack, which would fall on a 70-kilometer front further south, parallel to the Aisne Valley against the Chamois des Dames. Nivelle intended to use 25 French divisions, roughly 1.2 million men, to burst the large salient between Reims and Soissons. Nivelle had chosen the Chamois des Dames for two reasons. The first was that this section faced the bottom of a large salient around Noyen. French divisions thus benefited from the presence of the British Third Army, which was stationed to the east, covering the French left flank. Nivelle's second reason for choosing this ground was the unwavering confidence he had in his plan and method. He once told a French staff officer, quote, We now have the formula. That formula... Nivelle was speaking about, was the same formula he employed at Verdun, and I think we should review what that formula was before heading on. Nivelle's operational and tactical ideas were not so different from Joffre's, but there were important distinctions. Where Joffre favored the slow, attritional grind aimed at rupturing the enemy's defenses, Nivelle believed a short but accelerated offensive lasting no more than 48 hours, could do the trick. Nivelle borrowed heavily from the methods the Germans employed at Verdun. There, German gunners had concentrated their fire onto narrow zones, destroyed everything throughout the depth of those zones, and thereby opened corridors for the infantry to surge through. This method required an unparalleled concentration of heavy artillery, something the Germans had plenty of in 1916. The French were slow to adopt this method due to a shortage of heavy equipment, but by 1917, they too had sufficient long-range guns which could devastate German defenses. It was estimated that every corridor had to be cleared to a depth of 8 kilometers, meaning heavy, medium, and light field guns had to be meticulously placed, and fed with a steady diet of shells to maintain the hurricane bombardments. Fortunately for the French, gunnery was Nivelle's bread and butter. Nivelle had successfully adopted this technique in his Verdun counterattacks. Before departing from the Meuse, he bade farewell to his men by saying, quote, The experience is conclusive. Our method has proven itself. End quote. Nivelle was confident his methods would work. The sample size experience at Verdun had taught him so. The difference in 1917 
was that Nevelle was now planning to use them on a scale never before attempted. The Verdun front was no more than 20 kilometers across its zenith, but now Nevelle intended to use the same method on a front almost three times the size. How Nevelle hoped to ameliorate this important distinction remained to be seen. Nevelle's plan was met by heavy criticism both inside and outside the French army. The new Minister of War, Paul Payne Levy, received a torrent of complaints soon after taking office. Generals Pétain and Michelet, the commander tasked with carrying out the attack, were also united in opposition. Pétain scoffed at Neville's method, arguing that while it worked on the narrow fields at Verdun, it would not work on the broader fronts of the Aisne. The waters of Lake Geneva, Pétain said, would have but little effect if dispersed over the length and breadth of the Sahara Desert. Nevelle's plan was also met by significant pushback from the British, notably from Chief of the Imperial General Staff, William Robertson, and Field Marshal Douglas Haig. Robertson and Haig were looking to shift the British front towards Flanders, priming for an operation which would clear the U-boat bases along the Belgian coast. Haig had wanted this operation prior to the Somme, You'll remember that in episode 49, The Big Push, Haig floated this idea to Joff, only to have it struck down by the Belgian king. But with the Somme campaign now over, Haig was able to return to the Flanders operation once again, hoping to find it renewed support. 1916 had ended well for Haig. The king promoted him to field marshal in December, and Haig looked forward to 1917 with confidence. At his final meeting with Joff, the outgoing French commander informed Haig he was abandoning the idea of another cooperative campaign like the Somme. In 1917, Anglo-French troops would not fight side by side as they had in 1916. As long as the British remained committed to a major battle come spring, they were free to explore other avenues. In December 1916, Haig received an urgent letter from the War Committee in London. The Admiralty was concerned about the security of merchant shipping on the Channel. German U-boats operating out of Belgium were menacing the merchant fleet all along the coast, and as we saw in Part A, the Admiralty was reluctant to send their capital ships south of Newcastle. In short, the Navy was asking for help, and Haig was in no position to decline. He understood that if the Germans were able to gag the Channel trade routes, it would matter little how well or poorly the army was doing in Europe. Britain would be forced to make peace. Thus began a game of tug-of-war between Haig and Nevelle. The two men got along well at first, with Haig describing Nevelle as a straightforward and soldierly man. But that was where the amicability ended. As Haig considered Nevelle's plan, he grew more cautious. He believed it would commit the British army to another prolonged campaign. Nevelle assured him this wouldn't be the case. Nevertheless, Haig wanted a safeguard just in case. Haig reminded Nevelle of his claim that he would only need 48 hours to gauge if the plan had succeeded or failed. In the event of failure, Haig wanted to redeploy his armies to Flanders. This, Nevelle argued, could not happen. If his plan failed, then he would need the British to come to his aid. Besides, 
a confident Nevel spoke, if his plan succeeded, the Germans would clear the Belgian coast anyway, thus cancelling the need for a second offensive. The two men remained at odds throughout the winter. The impasse eventually led Nevel to travel with Haig to London on January 15th. In a conversation with Robertson, Haig made clear he had no problem with helping the French, but he also had to balance British interests with those of the Entente. He could not, in good faith, choose the desires of a foreign general over the requests of the Royal Navy. Robertson was sympathetic, but believed Nevel would win Lloyd George's support. After all, Nevel was offering a quick end to the war, and his offensive did not require a major commitment from the British Army. In short, it could save British lives, and this was not something the Prime Minister could afford to discount. Robertson was right in his assessment. Lloyd George embraced Nevel's plan. Nevel's confidence and articulate command of English won him the committee's support. In comparing the results of the Somme, Lloyd George concluded the French army was better equipped and better led than the British. This did not sit well with Haig and Robertson, but Nevel's plan had another major attraction. The French would do the bulk of the fighting, and therefore take most of the casualties. Speaking afterwards, the Prime Minister did not mince words, telling an associate, quote, Nevel had proven himself to be a man at Verdun, and when you get a man against one who has not proved himself, why, you back the man. End quote. At 11 a.m. the following morning, Hagen Robertson met with the War Committee. The committee found it necessary that the British Army endorse Nevel's plan by taking over a 32-kilometer section of front between Amiens and Wau. This freed up Nevel's divisions for redeployment along the Aisne. But the committee stopped short of giving Nevel a full victory. The relief of French forces would not begin until the first week of March. This was a stick and Nevel spoke, but the Frenchmen conceded to delay the offensive for three weeks, now scheduled to begin on April 5th. Despite this small hiccup, Nevel accomplished everything he set out to do in London. He departed the capital, promising his offensive would be a splendid harvest of glory for the British and French armies. Haig was less enthusiastic, reflecting afterwards that the committee's decisions were hastily concluded. But, accepting that as junior partner, Britain had to support her ally even if this required taking on a less glamorous role. In the end, Haig noted he was prepared to do so for the general good, and with his eyes fully open to the consequences. Those consequences that Haig alluded to would come in the grotesque forms of two of the most ghastly engagements witnessed on the Western Front, the Naval Offensive and the Campaign of Third Yeep a.k.a. the Battle of Passchendaele. We'll delve more into the intricacies of these operations in due time, but what I want to do now is switch our focus from the Western Front and head on over to the East. Some serious stuff was about to go down in Russia, and I want to end our discussion today by previewing what was in store for the Tsarist Kingdom.
Believe it or not, Russia entered 1917 in a better position than most could have anticipated. Early in the year, her generals were full of fight. She had 232 divisions in the field, and the recent success of the Galician campaign was a cause for euphoria and optimism. It proved the reforms of 1915-16 had worked, and that supply bottlenecks had been ironed out to a noticeable degree. Casualties had, of course, been enormous. One historian has estimated that Russia lost nearly 3 million men, killed or wounded, during the summer of 1916. A full 70% of her junior officers now came from the peasant ranks, but fewer than 10% had received any formal military training. Yet few in Russia's higher circles believed there were serious doubts brewing in the army. Brusilov, for one, believed a quiet winter of training and rebuilding of positions, along with the return of regular officers wounded during the summer, would restore order and discipline. Alexei Kaladin, commander of 8th Army south of the Pripyat Marshes, believed Russian cavalry would be running down fleeing Germans come spring. The Russians rode this wave of optimism all the way to Chantilly, where they too signed the dotted line for another general offensive. As is often the case, the good stuff masked the bad. Add enough butter and cheese, and even the most rancid dish can taste halfway decent. The same metaphor can be applied to Russia. In March 1917, Tsar Nicholas would abdicate the throne, leaving his kingdom in the hands of a newly formed provisional government. This would be the first step to full-blown revolution later in the year. But for now, I want to focus on the first two months of 1917, and leave the really good stuff for when we have time to unpack it in more detail. Aside from the public discontent, food shortages, and questionable morale, Russia's main obstacle heading into 1917 was logistics. Supplies were held up in ports and train stations much as they had in years past. To ease the congestion, the first spike of a new 1,300-kilometer rail line was laid in November 1916, Dubbed the Merman Railway, this track was to run from the ice-free Kola Inlet to the city of Petrosvosk in northwest Russia. It was to be the administration's latest effort at modernity, but instead became synonymous with every domestic issue facing the Tsarist kingdom. Before the first spike had been driven, the Merman Railway had swelled over budget. Construction began in one of the most remote parts of the country. Supplies had to be hauled in from central Russia, which were then offloaded onto carts and sledged across hundreds of kilometers of inhospitable terrain. There was not enough dynamite to blast tunnels, nor enough lumber to construct the 81 kilometers of bridge needed to bypass the vast marshes. Workers braved frigid temperatures, and were forced to work by torchlight during the nocturnal winter. The turnover rate was understandably high with more than 50% of the workforce refusing to renew their contracts. Thus, the administration turned to POWs, and soon enough, the prisoners outnumbered the workers, and violence between the two became a regular occurrence. The Merman Railway would take until 1959 to complete. Today, 
It is known as the Kirov Railway and connects St. Petersburg to Murmansk. But when construction first began, Russia was already in an unsalvageable situation. While the military could float optimistic numbers, those watching developments on the home front could sense a shift was coming. After Rasputin's murder, Russia's leaders thought things would improve. But instead, things became ever more slippery. In the weeks following the Mad Monk's murder, a shadow of uncertainty descended on the Tsarist kingdom. Besides a brief paragraph in the Petrograd papers, there was little mention of the monk's assassination. Tsarina Alexandra had barred the press from reporting it, but this did not stop word from getting out. To be sure, few mourned the loss of that creepy old weirdo. The people were happy to see him go. The royal family had been freed from his clutches, and hopefully, meaningful leadership would be restored. If those closest to the Romanovs believed Nicholas and Alexandra would snap out of their Rasputin-induced trance, they were to be sorely disappointed. Instead of some great awakening, Rasputin's death seemed to have little impact, at least on the surface. The Tsar continued to ignore the Duma on matters of reform, much to the chagrin of the more moderate parties like the Octoberists and Constitutional Democrats. Fearing Nicholas would crack down on the army, many senior officers resigned as a preemptive measure. Commander-in-Chief Mikhail Alexeyev decided to take sick leave, leaving the army in the hands of his chief of staff, Vasily Gurko. Colonel Alfred Knox, the British Army liaison, noticed a disturbing trend in the weeks following Rasputin's murder. Imperial officers were expressing their discontent with the royal family in ways that would have been impossible just a fortnight earlier. Knox noted that it was Tsarina Alexandra who, more often than not, was the source of the heaviest criticisms. To many skeptical Russians, Alexandra was always a person of dubious character. Her German heritage never sat well with them, and with the Tsar commanding the army in Mogilev, Alexandra was blamed for many of the domestic troubles flaring up across the country. Her ministerial appointments were also questionable. Her decision to replace competent foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, with the untried Boris Sturmer was particularly controversial. As you'll recall, Zazanov fell out of favor by opposing Romania's entry into the Entente, and we all know how well that turned out. Alexandra was hopelessly unprepared to rule a crumbling empire of 125 million inhabitants, but she had done nothing to earn the treacherous allegations against her. She and her husband were loyal members of the Entente, a loyalty which would cost them their lives just a year later. Even still, the continued ineptitude of the administration did not win the Romanovs any favors. Appointed ministers were either incompetent or severely handicapped by the bureaucratic apparatus. Meaningful reforms were almost impossible one way or another. Venting to Knox about a recent theft of magnetos and leather, a general of artillery had said, quote, What can we do? We have Germans everywhere. Even the damn empress is German. End quote. Concerns of public unrest led the Duma to hold an emergency meeting on January 25th. The purpose of the meeting was to discuss the recalling of troops to defend Petrograd. This 
was in response to events in Moscow a few weeks earlier, when 15 men from a local regiment were executed for refusing to fire on a crowd of demonstrators. Days later, several officers from neighboring units petitioned to rejoin their units at the front, rather than face redeployment in the city. Knox noted with alarm that the behavior of these units was part of a growing trend, suggesting that the arbitrary action of the past few weeks had been to unite all classes in opposition to the government. And so, it was in this atmosphere of uncertainty that the Tsar agreed to hold an armament summit in Petrograd on January 29th. The delegation of British, French, and Italian representatives arrived in the Russian capital to much pomp and circumstance. Lavish balls and dinner parties were thrown in their honor, further highlighting the growing social and economic divide between the Tsar and his subjects. The Petrograd summit was an attempt by the Lloyd George administration to establish better contact with their Russian ally. The British delegation was led by Lord Milner and Sir Henry Wilson. Milner represented the government, and Wilson the military. The French were led by future president Gaston de Merg and General Edouard de Castelnau. The Italians by Signor Scaliola. By Lloyd George's own admittance, the delegation met at a time when Russia's subterranean fires were beginning to break through the crust. The Petrograd summit lasted for three weeks, divided up by meetings, speeches, and tours of the frontline areas. The delegates found Russia in a deplorable state of disorganization, rent with faction, and permeated by fears of a German fifth column. Lord Milner complained that there were at least a handful of individuals present at each meeting that no one could account for, and that it was impossible to discuss anything of a confidential nature before more than 40 persons. The delegates often resorted to passing written notes, as Milner reported back to the War Office, quote, The proceedings of plenary meetings of the conference were of the most jejune and superficial character. The whole thing was extremely ill-arranged. More often than not, logistics and supply became the topic of discussion, with Russian officers and officials pleading the Allies for help. Nikolai Pogrovsky, Russia's third foreign minister in as many months, and Chief of Staff Vasily Gurko joined choruses in their requests for Allied aid. Pogrovsky opened the first sit-in discussion on February 1st by proclaiming the joint resources in men, material, and products was an advantage the Allies had to take hold of. Quote, For that, gentlemen, we have to distribute as usefully and intelligently as possible all our resources and thus assure them from the biggest return. End quote. Gurko followed up this speech by arguing coordination was essential and necessary for conditions of success. The Allied delegation agreed and sympathized wholeheartedly. Lord Milner told the Tsar personally that no thought could be given to individual interests of the Allied nations. The supreme interest was victory, and must remain so. Certainly, these were some rosy thoughts. 
While the Petrograd summit marked the first time the Allies had met on the Eastern Front, it was too late to save Russia from herself. The Allies agreed to send any and all aid available, but this was just more of the same rather than a new binding agreement. Lloyd George hailed the summit a success, as the state of Russia seemed to vindicate his criticisms he presented back in Rome. Lloyd George wrote later, quote, The self and stupid concentration of Anglo-French resources on the Western Front had neglected the conditions and needs of Russia. End quote. However, Lloyd George's criticisms were a bit wide of the mark. The Allies, the United States and Japan included, have been supplying Russia with armaments and materials for the past year. The bulk of the British shipments to Russia had been organized during Lloyd George's tenure as Minister of Munitions. The problem was that the supplies were not getting to where they needed to go. German U-boats had sapped Russia of her shipping tonnage. Ports were poorly administered, as were stockyards and locomotives. The Petrograd delegation was horrified to learn that in Vladivostok, 500,000 tons, yes, you heard that correctly, half a million tons of war material had been left sitting in the open, exposed to thieves and smugglers who cashed in big on the black market. In one particular stockyard, 4,000 tons of copper, which was to be minted into currency, was left to rust. In terminals across the country, boxcars were repurposed for storage space and as temporary housing for soldiers. Bribery was rampant, with delays up to weeks and even months. But this wasn't for a want of trying. Russian rail crews were undervalued heroes. They ran their machines 24-7. But as Alexander Guchkov, leader of the Octoberists and senior member of the Moscow Industrial Committee, had told Colonel Knox, coal was becoming scarce. On February 7th, it was discovered that many railways had only two to five days' worth of coal remaining. The railways were then ordered to carry nothing but coal for the next week, a move which proved entirely counterproductive. Overworked crews had no time to maintain their engines, and since this is February and Russia we're talking about here, cold snaps cracked rails and froze locomotives in their tracks. According to Guchkov, the transportation crisis had done more damage to Russia's prestige than the defeat at Tannenberg, and the ineptness of the government made fighting through another winter entirely remote. Russia's internal problems were well documented before the war, but it took the pressures of a European war to thrust them into the spotlight. Speaking in the Duma in November 1916, Pavel Milyakov, leader of the Constitutional Democrats, ended a litany of criticisms of the government's conduct of the war with the question, what is this, stupidity or treason? Meanwhile, the Moscow branch of the military-industrial committee took turns chastising the Tsar and his policies. During the same meeting, a senior officer took the floor and, pointing to a map of the front lines, had said, there, everything is right, but here, moving his finger to the rear area, everything is in chaos. This assessment was seconded by Henry Wilson, who reported the Russian army had recovered, 
and will, in his own words, do great things. Over their three weeks in Russia, the Petrograd delegation did more than discuss armaments and politics. They took the time to talk with regular Russians, and it was during these conversations when their difficulties compounded. Lord Milner reported that the Russian population was in an unhappy frame of mind, and that general discontent and frustration may turn into disgust for the war. Truth is, your average Russian had lost all taste for the war, that is, if he or she ever had it in the first place. Inflation was rampant. Goods that would have cost 100 rubles at the start of the war cost more than 1100 by 1917. Thus, whatever food did reach the cities was usually beyond the reach of the average worker. Foresters had ceased production due to a lack of oats for horses. In the cities, bakers churned out ersatz rye flour bread, much to the grumblings of the malnourished populace. To quote a police report issued in January 1917, quote, The exasperation of the people is growing by leaps and bounds. Every day, more and more of them demand, either give us food or stop the war. They have nothing to lose from a disadvantageous peace. Just when the thing will happen, and how, it is hard to tell. End quote. The thing that would happen began sooner than expected. Just before the conclusion of the Petrograd summit, French representative de Merg sought permission to extend the summit in order to attend the Duma meeting scheduled for the following week. His request was denied by a city official, the reason being the Duma did not wish to antagonize the Tsar by holding a meeting in the presence of foreign representatives. Thus, the Petrograd summit concluded as per schedule on February 25th. The delegates departed from Murmansk and were back in Skapaflow on March 2nd. As the Allies sailed off into the sunset, Duma President Mikhail Rodzienko wrote Tsar Nicholas urging to make immediate reforms. The Tsar ignored Rodzienko and responded by dissolving the Duma before heading off on a routine trip to his military headquarters in Mogilev. Meanwhile, back in Petrograd, the subterranean fires burst onto the surface. The city was gripped by a massive three-day strike. The Nevsky was a solid black river of people. Trams were no longer running, and automobiles were forced off the street. Tsar Nicholas was flooded with calls, most of which came from his wife, who was understandably alarmed by the turn of events. In response, Nicholas ordered a detachment of Imperial Guards and Cossacks to disperse the strikers by any means necessary. Both sides expected a bloodbath, a repeat of the 1905 Winter Palace Massacre. Instead, the Cossacks, skilled horsemen counted among the Tsar's most loyal units, laid their rifles at the city gates, while a machine gun company of Imperial Guards disobeyed direct orders and loaded their guns with blank ammunition. The men of one regiment went a bit further. When ordered to fire on the demonstrators, the soldiers turned their backs, aimed their rifles, and shot their own officers instead. 
Back in Mogilev, Nicholas decided the crisis required his attention. He boarded a train on March 12th, determined to grab hold of the situation and snuff out the dissenters. But before he even got close to the city, his train came to a screeching halt. Workers had seized the rail lines and told the royal entourage the only way to Petrograd was through the town of Piskov, a detour that would take the Tsar 160 kilometers south of the capital. After 300 years, the Romanovs would not be returning to Petrograd. Next week, we'll jump back over to the west. Germany had unleashed the U-boats, and we'll need to cover the reactions to that before heading back to Russia, and following Tsar Nicholas's decision to abdicate the throne. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email me directly thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been Episode 68, Part B of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.